0: Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 41. We ended last time with the words, repent. Then Peter said to them, repent. I'll just read the whole verse, though, this time. And in reality, the whole of the verse is included in the sermon. So verses 38 through 41. The book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 38 through 41. Hear God's word. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord God, the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word as ever, and we acknowledge to you that we stand in need of it as these, well as these guilty sinners stood in need of the word which was preached to them. Father, we ask you that we, like them, would be uh, duly impressed in our hearts and our consciences with our need of with them for this salvation. And if having received it with a renewed sense of joy and believing and we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, last time we saw Peter Peter's sermon is Pentecost sermon, which uh, you, you could debate where it actually ends. You could say it ends at verse 36 and then they respond or you could say it, it really goes, uh, to the end of, um, of verse 39. At any rate, uh, we considered the bulk of that sermon and we began to consider, uh, not just their response, what shall we do, but then his response to their response, we, simply with the word repent. But now I want to complete that picture. Peter's response to them and then we'll see in addition to that their response to his response. Now looking first is the first point to the word repent which we briefly considered last time but here uh, I wish to give it a fuller treatment. You remember these were men who were brought under the conviction of the word they came to see uh, the enormity of their sin. Many of these men Uh, Having played a part in the crucifixion of Jesus, something we read throughout the Gospels, they were conspiring uh, for for his death and and eventually uh, they succeeded. And now some of those men, those very men were present and they were cut to the heart as a result of Peter's preaching. They cry out, what shall we do? As though to say, now is there anything to do? Are we now past hope? Peter, do you preach this to us simply to torment us? Well, repent. Here is a hopeful word. For guilty bruised consciences. In other words. He was now offering them hope. Peter here assured them. There was something they could do. They could. uh, As the prophets had preached throughout. All the scriptures. Peter now standing alongside them. They could repent. That is to say. They could turn and be saved from their sin. Still that was the summons. Of the gospel. Not just the prophets. But John and Jesus before him. Even as they had said. Here Jesus was preaching to men. Who were ready to part with their sins. And yet you realize. I hope why this message is so crucial. Why it is so often the first word. That leaves the lip of the prophet or the preacher. Whether the, whether John, Jesus or Peter. Or the prophets. It's because sin is the great thing that stands in the way. It's the thing that keeps man Far from the kingdom of God. We sinners hold our sins so dearly. We would rather go to hell than part with our sin. But the message of Peter. And the message that I would preach along with him. Is that no sooner than a man does so. That is part with his sin. Does he find in God a willing and merciful savior. He finds that the gates of heaven are open to him. Mercifully and graciously. Though he deserves none of it. The great need, the great requirement is that the sinner be willing to part with his sin. Repent, Peter preaches. And what is repentance? That really is the great question here, which we did not have time to consider last time, but which we do here. Is there any question more important? Again, so commonly the refrain of the preachers of the Bible, of the Bible. what is meant by it? Do you know what repentance means? Do you know it as a practical matter? It's helpful here. To consider this question in light of the sermon Peter just preached to these men, as well as in light of the condition of these very men to whom he had preached and told to repent. Repentance, we might see, uh, consists primarily in, uh, in two things. First, repentance is a turning away from sin, first of all. That's the first great thing. And so it's a change of heart or it's a change of the mind and the life. It's the setting out, if you will, on a new course. Turning from sin and taking up the practice of true righteousness. And what was their sin from which they had turned? What, turned Was it not already defined? Sin, you see, as the preaching ought to define, is not a vague uh, notion. It's not a vain thing. It never is. Sin is always particular. Sin is something that man commits. Thus, it is something that can be named. And here it was named. And sin... Uh, Equally, therefore, is something from which a man might turn as a practical thing. So, too, as a second point, is repentance a turning unto. It isn't just a turning from sin concretely and practically. It is a turning unto, as the confession says, God. A turning from sin unto God or a turning from death unto life. And it is the man who truly repents uh, to whom Joel and Peter were both speaking. The man, uh, as Joel had said, and Peter quoted, who cries unto the Lord for salvation. This is a man who says, Lord, I'm ready to part from my sin. I'm ready to turn from it. If only if only you will receive me. A man whose face formerly was set on his sin and hell was determined to get there as fast as he could. To sin as much as he could and get to hell as fast as he could. Now he turns from that. He's open to God. He's open to this new course, this new life. He's had a change of heart. He turns away from sin in the broad path that leads to death and destruction. He ventures out on the narrow path that leads to life. And before he takes the first step, he cries out to God and asks, Oh God, is there any hope for me? I've lived a life of sin. Will you save me still? I've turned unto you. Will you accept me? You see, that's what repentance is like. But we could be even more specific than that. Here is a man who is naming his sin. And he's calling out to the Lord at the same time. Such that these men, in essence, when Peter says repent, were asked to do this. To say, oh Jesus, it was I who crucified you. Yet now I see my sin. I own it. I name it. I turn from it. And I ask you, Jesus, Lord. Humbly to save me and to lead me on this new course on which I now wish to venture the narrow path which leads to life. It is a turning from sin unto God, but but see it as a very concrete, practical thing, not a vague notion. But let me go further. Let me add another element to this. We read in verse forty one. That as many uh, as uh, gladly received, or or let's see here, it says uh, those who gladly received his word were baptized. Well, there were some who gladly received it. That's important. That really gets at the essence of what repentance is. What the the prophets meant when they said repent. The man who repents is like this. He's the man who gladly receives the preaching. He's glad to be told he's a sinner. He's equally, and, and if not more so, glad to be told that there is salvation for sinners. He, the preacher comes along and he says, in answer to the question, what, what must I do? The preacher says, repent. Well, he's glad to hear it. Do you see how different that is from the Pharisees? The Pharisees were told, you, you know, you're sick. You're sinful. You're, you're, you're about to be damned for all time. You've got to repent. They weren't glad to hear that. They bitterly resented it. But here were men who were glad to be told that there was something that might be done for their sin, something they might do. Yes, they might really turn from it. You see, that's not bad news. That's good news. And there was, therefore, no element of reluctance in the heart of these guilty sinners. They were never so relieved to be told anything than to be told to repent. Of course, we know not all who heard the message did this. Only those who did and who were baptized were happy about it. They were glad, I say again, to repent of their sins. They were glad to hear that the grace of God was available to sinners such as themselves. And so I would say as a kind of axiom, if there isn't the element of glad, this element of gladness, then there's no repentance. A man who is reluctant and unsure really hasn't repented at all. But the man who is glad is the man who's repented. That's Repentance. It's a turning from sin unto God. It's a setting out gladly on a new course. And how wonderful let us see to read that these men, these very men did so on that day, that these of all people repented of their sin. You see, they didn't do it when John preached to them. They didn't do it even when Jesus preached to them. But now on that day, they did. It's a marvelous, wonderful picture. But the second thing he said is, be baptized, repent, and be baptized, all of you, in the name of Jesus, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit, he says. Let us notice, first of all, that repent or baptism here is connected with repentance. It doesn't stand on its own. It is part of that same message. If you go back to John, you find the same thing. He was preaching the message of repentance in the context of baptism. And it was a baptism for repentance, so it was here. What is baptism then? Well, baptism is like this. It's a visible token. It was for them especially, but for us as well, an outward pledge of our repentance. If you're really to repent, you have to repent with your life. You don't just mutter a couple quiet words in your closet. A real repentance is something visible. It's something outward. It's something for the world to see. Do you see how fitting especially? It's always fitting, but especially for these Jews. Who had rejected Christ publicly. Now they should come under the rite of baptism. And show that they were setting out on a new course. They were submitting to something that they had rejected. They were submitting in particular now. To the name of Jesus. That's the key. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. And who is Jesus? Well Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Not only whom they had crucified. But whom the Lord raised up and declared to be the son of God with power. He's the Lord to whom men must call. He's the Lord uh, if if they are to be saved. He's the Lord who pours out a spirit now on the church. He's the one who promised that he would build it, build the church, be baptized. How in the name of Jesus, such that a man who is baptized now has identified with Jesus. He's saying, I'm now a Christian, whatever I was before. I'm now a Christian. I belong to Jesus. I've now come under his authority uh, totally and completely. I'm one of his disciples. I've confessed him as Lord openly and publicly. Whoever calls upon the the name of the Lord will be saved. And that name is Jesus. And I've called upon him. I've thrown my lot in with Jesus as he threw in his lot with mine. Baptism isn't salvation. Let us see. And let me state that very clearly. But it is a visible token of salvation. Salvation. It signifies and seals a man's new relation to Jesus. It attends salvation as a picture. And so it did here, repent and be baptized. What about the question of infant baptism? Well, this is an interesting text. In light of that question, Peter says, let me give the full statement. He says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39 for the promises for you and to your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord God will call. Well, uh, for those who are far off, hold on to that for now. But what about your children? He says the promises for you and your children. I'm not leaving the last phrase out, but I'm I'm tabling it for now. I, I agree with Sinclair Ferguson That it is this text that really settles the issue of infant baptism. And that if this text isn't able to do it, then there really isn't anyone that can. But but, uh, imagine the scene here uh, that Peter is speaking to Jews. He was speaking to those who were aware of the terms of the old covenant. He was speaking to those who circumcised infants like Abraham before them. Abraham not only believed and was circumcised, but his whole household along with him. So, so that when Peter then says to these Jews, baptism is for you and for your children in the same way, the sign of the covenant and the old covenant was for you and your children. He wasn't saying anything new. He wasn't saying anything surprising. He was speaking the language, if you like, of the covenant, which is the language of the household going back to Abraham. Are we surprised then to see, as with Abraham, whose entire household in Genesis 17 received the sign of the covenant as it was then circumcision, entire households later in Acts receiving the sign of baptism. Entire households, which must have included infants. It's the same thing because it's the same covenant. It's the covenant of grace. Peter is not signifying a great change in uh, the administration of Uh, of the sign, the initial rite of initiation, that is circumcision in the old, baptism in the new, he's saying that structurally the covenant is the same. Repent and be baptized. Why? Well, the promise is for you and your children. You see, that's just the same language you find in the old covenant. The covenant includes, I say, Well, I say together with the Westminster Confession of Faith, it includes the children of believers, not just believers, but the children of believers. It always has going back to Abraham. That's why we baptize infants. But what does he say beyond that? Now, as a third point, first, repent, second, be baptized, third, he says to those who do, you will receive this double gift of God. You will receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the spirit. Let us deal with each. In turn, here is where we really get at the essence of the new covenant. You will receive the forgiveness of sins. And is that not what they needed most? Is that not what they longed for most? Their hearts being cut uh, or, or they were cut to the heart, Peter, uh, Luke says, as a result of Peter's preaching. The thing they wanted to know most is, is there any forgiveness for me? To know that God, despite the enormity of their crime, Would forgive them nonetheless. And hold their their sins against them no more. And did they not realize. That though it was they who were, were responsible for Christ's crucifixion. That the cross was at the same time the very fount of forgiveness. Even for them. And for all. Oh they looked on him whom they had crucified and they mourned. And yet they needed Peter to tell them. That what God was doing was making way for their pardon. He was imputing their sin to Christ so that in him they might become the righteousness of God. Here was good news indeed. God will pardon your sin, Peter says. He'll save you if you cry unto him. How so? By nailing your sin to the cross. By putting an end to it there. You see, for as bad as their sin was and ours along with them, God won't punish. He won't punish any sin twice. If he punished it at the cross, it's dealt with. God will forgive it now. He'll forgive it. He'll put it away from you and him forever. Oh, forgiveness is costly. Let us see that as well. Even for God, it cost him the blood of his own dear son come in the flesh. But having paid the cost, God is able to ransom guilty sinners to himself. Yes, there is forgiveness in the blood of Jesus, even if that blood came at the hand of sinners. Even they might experience the gift of remission if they but call upon him. Repent and be baptized in his name. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. But you see, he also says you'll receive the gift of the Spirit. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's the gift here? Well, the gift isn't the gifts. That isn't the point. He isn't saying You'll speak in tongues, you'll prophesy, or anything like that. He's saying the gift you'll receive is the Spirit himself. The Spirit is the gift. In other words, you'll receive along with us baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul speaks of later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. He says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. That's the point here. Or, or Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. When Paul says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who Who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do do you realize what Peter is saying and what Paul is saying? Both men are saying that the gift is the spirit himself, the spirit dwelling in the believer, even Christ himself by the spirit coming to dwell in you. Now, Peter is saying that is something that isn't true of you yet, but it will be. It will be true of you just as soon as you're converted, just as soon as you become a Christian. A Christian is a man who's full of the Spirit. That's what he is. He's a man who's been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Just as soon as you repent of your sin, just as soon as you confess your faith in baptism in the name of Jesus, you will receive the gift of the Spirit. You will be baptized with the Spirit. We could be even more specific. Along with Paul and later in uh, later sermon uh, later epistles, rather, the gift of the spirit is what gives us a new nature and a new heart. A Christian is someone who's not natural but spiritual, that is to say, he has the very nature of the Holy Spirit in him. He's no longer guided by the flesh, but he's guided by the spirit. He's led by the spirit, the Holy Spirit. When we look at it like this, what we really see Peter saying, Is that the promise of Jeremiah 31 has been fulfilled. As the writer to the Hebrews says as well in Hebrews chapter 8. The two great promises of the new covenant is that I will blot out their transgressions and I will remember them no more. There is in the name of Jesus the remission of sins but there's more. There is also the promise of a new nature. I'll write my law on their hearts. Those hard hearts, I'll make them soft, I'll make them hearts of flesh, and they'll be given a new nature. Who is the author of the new nature? Who is the one who writes the law in the heart? It's the Holy Spirit. That's what the gift of the Spirit is, and it comes along with the gift of forgiveness. Here is a gift, Peter says, a double gift, the gift of pardon, the gift of a new nature by the Spirit that isn't only for the Apostles. You see, that was the danger here to think, look how the spirit came upon these men, imagining some parallel with uh, the old covenant, the spirit coming upon the prophets. No, Peter is saying the same gift is for you and it's for all Christians. And it is on this basis that the church will be formed and the church will be built spirit, spirit filled believers. This is the gift of the exalted Christ upon all who call upon his name. Let us also see. The free offer of the gospel as the as a fourth point. It's for all. It's 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 not only for you and your children, but it's to all who are far off as many as uh, as as call uh, as as excuse me, as many as the Lord, our God will call. And indeed, we could add as many. I was trying to make the text say this, but I'll say it: as many as call upon the name of the Lord. That that's from a little earlier on in the sermon. The gospel is offered. Let us see freely. First of all. Freely. That is to say, without cost. God doesn't put a price on your salvation. In other words, a price for you to pay. No, it's already been paid. Salvation, as far as you're concerned and any man is concerned, is absolutely free. Have we fully grasped that? Or are we still putting a price or a cost on our own redemption? Beyond that of the blood of Jesus Christ. What's the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel is that any man... Any man at all who is thirsty may come unto these waters and drink freely without cost. He need not pay a thing. That's the very last word of Christ in Revelation. I could put it like this. Conditions are not set on persons but on hearts. God does not ask you or I. Are you a Jew? Are you a white man or a black man? Are you a male or a female? A slave or a free? He doesn't ask you any of that. He says that's all indifferent. It's irrelevant from the standpoint of salvation. He asks you only this. What is the condition of your heart? Are you a sinner? Do you know yourself to be a sinner? Have you been made to feel Have you, uh, that you are a sinner? Have you been brought under uh, conviction or compunction? As I keep saying, the Puritans called it. Do you see how desperately you need the medicine of salvation at the hands of Jesus? And are you willing that God should save you by his Son's By, uh, by his son. Uh, singular, uh, not by works that you have done, but freely by his grace. Will you receive salvation as a gift as only a child could or, or those who share the disposition of children? You see, that's what Machen says. Why does Jesus say only a child can receive salvation? And unless you become a child, you can't be saved. Because as Machen says, only a child knows how to receive a gift. And you see, the adult is too proud to do so. But a child can gladly say thank you. That's the disposition Of those who are saved, of those who can be saved, those who are willing to receive salvation freely by the grace of God as a gift. And such a gift is offered freely to all. Let every one of you, even the worst. You see, we don't understand the grace of God until we can say that even the worst, even the vilest sinner. There isn't a single one who's excluded from this offer. I'm not saying every man will be saved, but I'm saying that any man can be. And so was Peter. Any man can be saved by the grace of God, even the vilest sinner. Even the very men who nailed the nails into the cross or the hands of Jesus Christ on the cross. Even they might be saved. The vilest sinner whose heart was full of hatred and enmity even as they crucified him, crying out, Let him be crucified. Oh, let even he turn from his sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus and he will receive the gifts of God. He will receive the gift of forgiveness, the gift of the spirit, a new nature. The gospel is offered freely to all. But do you notice this as well as it's offered freely to all? It comes to all men as a warning. Yes, as a gift, but also as a warning. Did you notice that as well? Verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. You see, he's warning them. He's saying that you men stand in grave peril. Your danger is perhaps more realized or perhaps greater than you realize they needed to be saved, just like every one of us needs to be saved. In other words, today is the day of salvation. Today's the day you need to turn. We don't know if we'll have a tomorrow today. Uh, today we eat and drink tomorrow. We may be in hell today. Turn, he says. That's the message of the gospel. Save yourselves before it's too late. That's what Peter preached. That's what I'm preaching. And if you heed it not, if you hear the glad tidings and refuse to be saved, then I must warn you. Then this free offer must come in the the form of a warning. You, any who are here, who refuse to be saved, you stand even now in danger of the fires of hell. Save yourself, Peter says. Save yourself, I say. From this wicked and perverse generation before it's too late. In the days of the apostles they could say this with special effect. They could speak of this perverse generation. For that wicked generation had just crucified the Lord Jesus himself. And yet I see no difficulty in speaking with the same urgency today. Save yourself from this perverse generation. I say it with the same urgency that Peter did. Offering this gospel by way of warning. For the good news of the gospel is not that men are saved, let us see, but that they can be freely without cost. If they but come to the waters and drink, they shall be saved. Yes, but as things stand, even today, man is very wicked. The generation in which we live is as wicked as any. Do you have any difficulty in seeing that? And if man is to be saved, he must be saved from it. Jesus didn't come into the world, nor did he die on the cross uh, to to give license to sin. He came to save men from it, to deliver them out of it, not just to pardon them, but to set them on a new course. A man, if he is to be saved, if you like, must leave the world in order to come to God. Again, back to the message of repentance. He's got to be saved from or out of this perverse generation or else he can't be saved. He can't stay where he is or stand where he is. But you see, those who feel and those who know the wickedness of this day are glad to hear it, just as they were in Peter's day. There was never a better message uh, or more welcome message than that the gospel should be preached in this way. As things stand, you stand in the midst of a wicked generation, but God is saying you might be saved from it. In other words, there's something better that God is offering for you. Not that you should perish along with the world, but that you should be delivered out of it even now. That man might be saved from it all, taken out of this world, given over to such wickedness and standing under God's condemnation and placed into something better altogether. Which tells us in the fifth place, the nature of this salvation, it's a salvation from the world, it's a salvation out of it, a deliverance. That's what every man needs, whether he realizes it or not. And if he doesn't realize it, then he's going to perish along with the world. Man needs to be saved from the world. And that's how the gospel comes to us. It meets us in our need. It meets us in our peril and our danger. And what it does to us is it delivers us. It takes us out of the world and it takes the world out of us. So also we could say the nature of the salvation is being saved into. Not just being delivered out of, but being saved into. A man is brought out of a state of condemnation and judgment into a state of salvation. That's where he's placed. He's placed into Christ. A Christian is a man who's in Christ. But this reality is not theoretical, it's concrete. Or it's not abstract, it's concrete, it's practical. It has practical consequences for his life and his standing in this world. No more, he finds, if he is saved indeed, will the world befriend him, nor he the world. He stands in a new strained relation to the world. And Jesus says, As the world hated me, so it will hate you. That's what a disciple is like. That's what he's bound to experience. He's no longer on easy te- terms with the world. But, but but even beyond that, his allegiance radically has changed from the moment he becomes a Christian. No more does he throw in his lot with the world. No more does he listen to the world or take uh, orders from the world. His allegiance is now with Christ. And as a result of this, as the sixth point, we find uh, the formation of the church. Verse 41. Then those... Who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. I've wondered about this. I, I said as the title, the church is formed, and now I'm saying the church was founded as, as my sixth point. Well, well, even now I'm, I'm questioning this out loud, because really, if I'm to be fair to Peter, what, what he actually says, uh, what, or Luke, uh, what Luke actually says is that they were added, as though to say, you know, the church already existed. It existed in seed form. There were these 120 persons. But the amazing thing now that happened uh, was that as a result of Peter's preaching, uh, this, this 120 became thousands, uh, just like that, as a result of one sermon now, uh, if you prefer, rather than saying she was founded, though perhaps we could say, I think there's, there's warrant in saying on Pentecost the church was founded, uh, but we could say at the very least she took on a new glorious form, full of the spirit and now full of people. They were added, many, many were added on that day to what? To, to the church. They came out of the world and into the church. That's the point. They took on a separate, distinct, Existence, And when we think about the question that I've been asking throughout these sermons, what is the church? In many ways, that's the crucial aspect of the life of the church. What is the church? It is something which is separate, something which is holy, something that is radically distinct from the world. And do you see here how she multiplied? This was not a matter of man. Peter didn't do this. Anyone who's read the Gospels is well acquainted with Peter's weakness. This was the work and the will of God himself brought to pass. It was his will that many should be saved and brought into the church effectually. By the power of the Spirit through the preaching. Converting guilty sinners. And that remains his will today. That wasn't just God's will on Pentecost. It is still the will of God that men should turn from their sins. Be baptized in the name of Jesus and brought into the church. That is still what we're looking for him to do. We are looking for God to add to the church. Not to be content with the church as she now is. As I I pointed out, we're not even 120. But to realize that God is still adding to his church. He's still doing this. It's still the will of God. And we thank God certainly that he's done so for ourselves. Think of it. How do we explain our place in the church? That we should be here and so many outside. How is it that we, like these guilty convicted Jews, should be brought into the church? When we so willingly and so gladly went along with the world for so long. What is the explanation? The explanation is the will of God. It's the only one. It isn't a matter of works nor of the will of man, but of the will of God and the grace of God. It was his electing love, his electing grace that brought you out of the world and into the church. There's no other explanation. Are you not able uh, to look upon yourself with amazement and say, why was it me and not someone else? Why do I have a place here and not stand with those in the world? I wonder at the grace that saved me. But what you see here, and what Acts makes unmistakably clear to us, is that salvation is seen as men coming into the church, being added to the number of believers, joining her ranks. What is clear, in other words, is Stuart, Robert, Stuart, Stuart Robinson says, uh, this is the title of his book, the church is an essential element of the gospel. I wonder if we're accustomed to thinking in those terms. We tend to think of salvation than the church. Have we ever thought of the church as an aspect of salvation, as an aspect of the gospel itself? What we see here is that this is what salvation means. For a man to be saved is for him to be added to the church. The two things go together of necessity. Here we read of men who formerly hated Jesus and wanted him dead. Now following him, they were disciples. And you can't be a disciple on your own. To be, a, to be a disciple is to be enrolled in Christ's school. It's to be one of his pupils. And that's what the church is. This church is the school of Christ. In which his pupils or his disciples are enrolled. And they are constantly learning of Christ. The church is where he gathers us. And teaches us. And protects us. Nowhere in the New Testament do we read of a Christian outside of the church. The company of believers. No, salvation always meant in the New Testament being added to the church. And yet I think we can say fairly and accurately that things today are not what they were then. Today you have many who claim to be Christians who are not members of a church. A man says, uh, I'm a believer of Jesus. Uh, and perhaps he was, uh, I've, actually, I've actually heard of this happening. He was uh, baptized in his tub by his brother-in-law or something like that. And he says, I'm a Christian now. But that ignores, beloved, what true faith in Jesus involves and requires. It requires an identification with Jesus and all who are his. It requires not only confessing Christ as Lord, but being baptized in his name. And what is baptism? It's a man's entrance into the church. Beyond that, it requires that he joins the company of believers. He identifies with them. Such indeed, Paul later tells us, is what the gift of the Spirit involves. The Spirit comes to a man and unites him to other believers in the bond of peace. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. You see, the Spirit doesn't just join a man to Christ the head. He does that. But in joining him to the head, he joins uh, him equally to the whole body of believers. And so it's in that sense, a man who is saved must find his way into a church of necessity. Or else we might query whether he is really as full of the Spirit as he claims. If he's really saved, then he will be at it. He'll be enrolled in the school. He'll identify not only with Christ, but his followers. And so much for my defense of church membership. But let me close uh, in this way. Based upon what has been said, We are prepared to define the essential elements of the gospel, and there are three. The first is, and and I'm taking uh, the whole here of Peter's sermon. The authoritative witness to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's the first point. That's the first essential element of the gospel. The apostles were eyewitnesses of his majesty and his ministry. So, too, they appealed to the witness of the Old Testament scriptures. And so we had two authoritative witnesses We have the witness of the apostles and we have the witnesses of the prophets. And later on in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says the church is founded upon the prophets and the apostles. It's in that sense that I'm saying that the gospel depends upon those two witnesses even today. To preach and to believe the gospel Of Jesus Christ is to accept the testimony of these two witnesses, the testimony of the apostles and the prophets as found in the Old and New Testaments. It is not, in other words, to accept the testimony of man. There isn't a single man who is capable today of testifying to Jesus apart from these scriptures. But we find even the apostles who were able to do so, even they did not do so apart from the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures. An authoritative witness to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, number one. Number two, a pointed application or appeal to the hearer directly based upon these truths. In other words, Peter doesn't leave the gospel hanging in the air. He doesn't say, well, you know, I presented Christ now and I leave it to the spirit to convict your hearts. There's a lot of preaching today that passes as preaching that does that. But I'm well, I find myself directly at odds with such teaching No, Peter told men plainly what they must do to be saved, having told them of their sin and of the Savior. In other words, Peter believed in application, pointed uh, applications directed directly to the hearer. But we must also see in closing as a third point, the explicit connection between soteriology and ecclesiology. That is between salvation and the church. What does Jesus Christ do having gone to the Father? And having received the fullness of the spirit, he pours it out upon the church. He builds the church. That's the work he takes up now. The work of building the church. You see, that's the work of Christ. That's what he's doing now. And that too, we discover here in the preaching of Peter, plays a part in the authentic preaching of the gospel. That's why you can't just hold an evangelistic rally and leave things there. You've got to call men into the church. It's no wonder that the confession says, and I agree with the confession, that outside of the church there's no ordinary possibility of salvation. They're not stating things in an absolute way. Of course, there are exceptions. I'll grant that. But ordinarily, there's no possibility of salvation outside of the church. Or did did you ever know what Calvin said and and Augustine said before him? If the church is our father or excuse me, uh, if God is our father, the church is our mother. Are we comfortable with that language or do we say, you know, that's Roman Catholic. I'm not comfortable with that language. Well, I'm telling you, that's Calvin. That's John Calvin. If God is our father, the church is our mother. But you see, that kind of language is inevitable. And it is very natural given the account that we read in Acts chapter 2 of the mighty preaching of Peter and what happened as a consequence. What it was Indeed, that he was calling men to, having repented from their sins, he was calling them into the church. How can we read this account in Acts chapter 2 and not appreciate the importance of the church? Is impossible. What happened to these men is that they were baptized and added to the church, having repented at the preaching of Peter. And what these first gathering... Uh, gathering of believers did we will see next in verses uh, 42 through 47. We'll see a kind of paradigm for the church. But for now, let us see that saving ourselves from this perverse generation. Verse 40 will invariably lead us in one uh, one direction, namely into the presence and the company of believers in the church. And if you were to ask, what is our reason and what is our warrant for gathering as we do week by week? Here is your answer. It is found in Acts chapter 2. Amen. And let us stand together now and sing praise to God. Uh, This is a new hymn.